What are you waiting for? Welcome to This Is Not A Dress Rehearsal Podcast. Stop holding your breath, waiting for perfect conditions before you move through the world. Tune in for real stories of real people who understand the freedom to live well. Your host, Bonnie Sewell, is a veteran wealth manager with 12 grandchildren, helping clients over the last 30 years enjoy their wealth. You can listen to all podcasts at www.americancapitalplanning.com slash podcast or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Sebastian Marquette is the commercial director for Crush to Cellar in Newburgh, Oregon, a one-stop shop for growing wineries. Known on Instagram as the Sailing Winemaker, Sebastian has built a life being true to his interests and talents. He's also the co-owner of Burgundy Style. They provide innovative consulting services in winemaking, viticulture, and winery management. From the east and west coast of the USA, they address client needs ranging from rootstock selection, vineyard implantation, wine production, analysis assessments, and all processes involved from the vineyard to the tasting room. Perhaps most importantly, Burgundy Style hosts intimate and immersive trips through Burgundy, France, which Murray and I have enjoyed and recommend to anyone wishing to learn more about France and Burgundy in particular through the eyes of a winemaker who grew up there. Welcome, Sebastian. Thank you. Welcome. I'm so glad to see you. It's been a long time since we've seen each other, so it's really nice that the audience can't see you, but you look terrific. <laughs> Thank you. I wish we were enjoying this conversation over a shared meal and a beautiful glass of wine, but it's still a work day here. We're in COVID. Uh, there's a distance here between the two coasts, so here we are. But you have still consistently risen above circumstances that come your way, and I'm fascinated by the way that you pursue a good life. What story can you share with our listeners about how you know this is not a dress rehearsal? I grew up in Burgundy, and, and I believe that I never share that story to anyone before except the family members. But at the young age of, of six years old, I've been diagnosed with a blood disease named purpura thrombopedic idiopathic with low level of platelet and excessive bruising and bleeding. And so my poor parents have to drop me to the, the children's hospital in Dijon and I was, I think, four and a half, five years old. And, uh, and I w had to be in a bubble and, and be uh, protected from uh, any other viruses. And so I spent, you know, the first young age in the hospital in the bubble, was not able to go to school like everybody else. And I believe that experience really uh, built me strongly for the future for my life. So from... One year, I stay in the hospital in a bubble with no school. And for an additional five or six years, I had to go to a blood sample to make sure that my level were correct and everything. And after six or seven years of treatment, I was healed and, and not sick anymore. So I could go back to the normal life. But I really carve, I think, the way of my life and carve my future. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate that. That early start certainly would have been uh, really set the groundwork for let's not waste any time. Health is everything. 
you know, you've also spoken about being an unmotivated student in high school. However, even after that, you have completed extensive and rigorous education uh, post high school. But here in the U.S., we tend to obsess a lot over good grades and school performance and where did you go to school, that type of thing. But what would you say to somebody who, you know, about being a student of life versus a very good student in school? Yeah, correct. We have a the year in the hospital, I got behind the basic school system, you know, reading and writing, and, and I became very complex about that. So when my parents put me in school, I was always the one who cannot read as fast as others or write as good than others. So I built some fears and complex about, you know, school. And to a young age, I was very turned off by the system and was not very uh, excited to go to learn in the school system. So it was very challenging, not only for me, but also for my parents, because every night you have to do homework and I was not motivated and they have to push me and it was always a fight. So at that time it was becoming very uh, painful for both of us. The only thing I was interested in was to go with my grandfather outside with nature and, and explore the vineyard. And, and that really also uh, started putting a seed in, in my head, you know, uh, working outside with my grandfather. So, well, that brings us to Wine High School, which I never even knew existed. Can you help our listeners understand what that is as you experienced it in Burgundy? Yes. So because I was, you know, not very excited about the school system and I was in love with vineyard and, and, and winemaking and learning with my grandfather, my parents, you know, got the great idea to say, you know, he's very passionate about vineyard and, and wine and we should found the school in Burgundy where you can you know, explore and, and learn more about that. So, so you have a school where you can be a, a sent in boarding school where you can be sent. I think my parents <laughs> were very happy to send me to boarding school at that stage. But uh, they found a school in Burgundy, the Lycée Viticole de Beaune, where you can start at 14 years old with very professional hands-on programs. So I went to the school and, and I have five hours of viticulture per week, hands-on in the vineyard. I have, uh, you know, five hours of uh, enology where you can express and learn about yeast and winemaking and, and, and lab work. So it was a school very adapted for my need because I was not very good in French or English or anything like that at that time. But I was passionate about the vineyard and winemaking. So so at that point, I became a good student. You know, I, I got all the, the grade up there. I was very motivated about learning vineyard and, and, and everything else. And so I, I found my way and, and I was able to get the degrees and I need to, to do what I, I, I love, you know. So that was very, very uh, fortunate. Very neat. When we first met, you were helping Lost Creek Winery here in Leesburg. Murray and I are shareholders there. We still enjoy that wine. And you have a talent for making excellent wine and helping wineries improve their product. You moved on to assist several other Virginia wineries, and that legacy is still here today. So thank you for that. What's your take on where Virginia wines are going today? Well, the wine industry is challenging in general. You need a lot of capitals invested. You need to have a long-term investment and little return. So you build a brand and you take time to make it successful. Virginia have greater challenges. In addition of the normal challenges, now you have a weather condition. We are very complicated. Uh, it's, it's very inconsistent. Uh, you have very cold winter, risk of frost in the spring. You have very humid summers as well. And then you work with 
a lot of small volume because it's not big properties there. So it's farm with a small vineyard and everybody needs to work, you know, with handcrafted techniques. So you don't have flexibility in terms of blending either because you have such a small volume to work with. So it is definitely challenging for Virginia. It is not impossible because people are doing it uh, successfully, but it's true that you have to just focus in the long term. And if you believe you can make it quickly, uh, you are in the wrong industry. Right. Right. Yes. And I remember you talking about those challenges when you were here and helping, but you are proof that it can be done. And um, so I'm, I'm excited that Virginia Wines took a big leap when you were here, and I, I hope they continue. And you came to Virginia from Napa and Sonoma. And, and I have a history with Northern California dating back to the 1978 when I first went out there to today. We have some clients out that way as well. But it's changed so much. Now that you're back on the West Coast, what has changed for you in California since you left there in 2008? Well, California represents about 90% of uh, U.S. production, okay? The U.S. are the number four producer in the world. We produce in America pretty much half of the volume than France or Italy produce. So California is a big machine, and it's a big machine for a long time. So not only is it a big machine in terms of production, but it's also a big machine in terms of tourism. Uh, so it becomes a destination. So for sure, a lot of people go there. The weather is incredible. So we were talking about consistency earlier with Virginia. They have consistency. But the biggest change to me is the fires. Mm. It, the fire became a real challenge. Uh, and it was, you know, if it was one every 10 years, that would be, you know, manageable i would say but right now it's almost every year so so winemakers need to be creative they need to be you know passionate <laughs> to be able to deal with that type of issue and it's not a quick answer you know so so to me it's not the tourists it's not uh, yes the cost of living is very high yes the house's price went to the ceiling so that is, I think, a detail to compare with the challenges in terms of pollution. So fires is the big difference to me. Interesting. And of course, when we see those on the news, it looks like the entire state is on fire. But I know that in the last round, I could actually identify some of the properties that got hit. So it does feel like it's much more prominent. Yes. And it was from South California to North Washington. So Wow. So it was not only just location, you know, I think uh, in August they get, uh, um, you know, this cold front coming from the Pacific and this hot front coming for, for east and, and that created this light storming, you know, lighting storm coming, 11,000 strikes, so fire started everywhere and there's nothing you can do at that point. And uh, from South California, I was in San Francisco Bay when that happened. Four days later, Isabel and I were driving back to Oregon. We didn't see the sky for 10 hours driving. So like, wow. So the complete state from California to Oregon were in the smoke. Uh, yeah. so it's, it's not much you can do at that point. You know, you have to be able to mitigate uh, uh, the issue in your winemaking protocol and that's it. And even if your fires don't touch the vineyard, are you tasting it in the wine? Yes. Smoke, uh, we had a, a webinar not, no later than earlier this morning about that. Yes, one hour of smoke in your grapes will create an impact on, on the quality of your product. So when you have smoke for three weeks, for sure, that will be difficult to, uh, to, to work with that grape. So many wineries decide to not harvest because they know then they will not be able to respect the quality of their brand. They worked hard for, for many years. So 
you have to mitigate. You have techniques. You have some some you know tricks under your hat that winemaker can use to at least make a commercial wine. Uh, talking about the best wine and best vintage, no, but make a commercial wine is still possible. So, but you have to be prepared and know what you are doing. Well, I hope you get a nice long break from from those fires. Switching gears a bit. You've lived through a divorce, as have I, as as have uh, Murray and and so many of the people that we work with. But you found love again with your beautiful, talented wife, Isabel. Uh, she's also an artist. In addition to being a, a great businesswoman, you have a blended family, which we always say is not for the faint of heart. How do you and Isabel celebrate the best of both of your worlds? Yes, I think to me, one answer, love, love, love. <laughs> Good. That's a good answer. <laughs> I, I really think then giving love, you know, spread love, you get love back. You know, I, I think uh, we all go through different moments and divorce is one of them. And we have to heal from that and we have to found a new love. And it's not always you think it will never happen again. But luck, I'm lucky uh, to have found Isabel. She's an incredible individual. Uh, she's a talented artist. Her painting are breathtaking and her business getting very, very successful now. She's very clever. She's absolutely magnificent inside and outside. And, um, and her two boys, Justin and Anthony, are also incredible artists, talented individuals as well. So Isabel did not only open her art to me, but also to my son. And that is precious to she was here for, for his education, Arthur. She's here for him every day. And my son lost his mom a few, few years back from breast cancer. So, so I think Isabel became the anchor to him as well. So, so now, yes, love. I'm lucky to, to found her. There's no question. It's a wonderful answer. Thank you for sharing that. In 2019, you and Isabel moved from Virginia back to the West Coast, and you took a break between what you were doing here and what you started to do there. On Instagram, as the sailing winemaker, I often put people on to you. You shared your route and experiences along the way by video. I loved it. I loved watching it from the dry safety of my desk. But tell us about that time period, because so many people fear taking any kind of, of break. Uh, tell us about the sailing and the perspective that you gained when you stepped back from things. Yes, I was burnt out. You know, I make wine for 30 years. I never really had, you know, vacation or time off. And winemaking is extremely stressful. I was absolute necessity. You know, I, I felt deep inside myself that I had to take a break, go away from that. And uh, and I went sailing, you know. I took the boat and, and I went sailing. I said, I'm going to take the boat from East Coast to West Coast. And so I... I went on the sea and I said, we're never coming back. <laughs> <laughs> but you did. I came back for, for Isabel. I came back for Isabel and <laughs> I feel strong. I, I feel uh, that it was a venture that I had to do it. And um, But I really miss out there. You know, I really miss the solitude and, and the elements. There's no question. I'm sure. So I can get a sunfish. And for listeners who don't know what that is, it's a one-person boat. It's a little tiny boat with a little hole in the middle, and that's where you sit. I can get that across Cayuga Lake in New York. And I, I actually did that for several summers. Um, it's five miles across, so it's not nothing, but it's close to nothing. 
But that's the extent of my sailing skills. And I've enjoyed sailing on a lot of other people's boats, um, including several in San Francisco Bay in the time that I was out there. That is not for the faint of heart out there, that invigorating sail in the bay. So talk to us about the connection for you between sailing and life as, as well as your favorite places to sail. So in my life, I always needed freedom. Traveling for pleasure was not possible because vacation time and money is not on my hands. So, and when I travel, I really want to be immersed to the place that I go. I don't just go for one week vacation because I don't think you feel the culture. Okay, you look the beautiful sights, but you don't feel the culture very deeply. So for me, travel was, you know, part of my lifestyle that I wanted to to do. And, and because I didn't want just to go vacation, I said I'm going to find a job at different location, and at this point, I will be learning different culture and 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 get the you know experience from from the places. And I I went. I didn't speak English when I came to United States. Now I speak English. I didn't speak Spanish when I came to United States. Now I speak Spanish. So I think that is is it's fabulous to be able to uh, to expand that and the comparison between. You know, that and, and selling is really a freedom. The only freedom on this planet that we have is in the water, you know. You need to know navigation for sure and safety and safety regulation. Uh, and after that, you are free. You are free to go south, north, east, west at the speed you want. There uh, is no speed limit in the water when you are there. There is no speed limit to go fast or slow. And... Uh, so I, th- I think that is really what appeal, you know, it's appealing to me. It's this freedom to know that you can take the anchor anytime you want and go off. When your boat is ready and you're ready, you can take off where you want. And there's no other place in this planet than you can do that. So I've been lucky and fortunate uh, to sail the Atlantic Ocean, uh, the Caribbean Sea, to go through Bahamas, uh, Jamaica, St. Lucia, Martinique, and on. I was lucky to pass the Canal of Panama. I would have loved to do the Cape Horn, but I did not. I did the Canal of Panama. So I put more than 6,000 nautical miles on that trip. And and I came back following the coast, Central America and, and Mexico, and, and arrived to the San Francisco Bay. And, and that was, you know... Fantastic. So I don't have a real place to 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 sell, but I love warm water. <laughs> so, <laughs> so so that is something for sure. I like warm water. That's funny. I do too. Which is funny because you're on the Pacific, and my ocean is the Atlantic Ocean because it's warmer. Yes, it is. But sailing the way you do takes skill and patience and persistence. And if someone wanted to learn sailing, where would they start? And where would you? Where do you think you're going to sail next? You cannot improvise, improvise yourself. You have to work. Selling is hard work. And if you want selling, go for it. You know, you have always, you build this fear, this wall of, of excuses, then you want to do it, but you always put limitation to yourself. And I don't think you should, anyone should put any limitation of what they want to do in life. And selling is a good example. Get a little boat, you know, get whatever boat. The beauty is to be on the water and be free. So it's not the size of a boat is important. It, I think it's the feeling of sailing and moving with the wind. So I would tell people to join American Sailing Association, for instance, to get the basic together, Keelboat 101. I think I started with that. It was just easy class just to learn the language and speak the same language with other sailors. 
And at this point, you're ready. You're ready to go. Just get a windsurf or whatever. <laughs> you know, and yeah. This is how I started. When I was 14 or 13 years old, I got the windsurf and I learned sailing on the windsurf and I had a little boat and a bigger boat. And, and I spent eight years in Caribbean Island in Martinique when I planted a vineyard there. So, so it was great because you can sell in Martinique. It's... So next destination uh, for me would be the Marquesas Island. You know, Marquesas for me, appeal me. It's very important. It's French Island. Is Paul Gauguin is buried there. Jacques Brel, the uh, Belgium singer, who has an incredible song about the Marquisas. That this is where I want to go next. Good. I hope you get there. That'll be exciting. Now, on that big trip, was there one thing that surprised you that you weren't prepared for after all your preparation? Yes, a lot. Many, many uh, surprise. Mechanical issue first. You know, we don't expect to uh, break things, and it happened all the time on the sailboat. So you have to be prepared to uh, to fix things. Weather, you don't control weather. That is also, uh, you can uh, download weather every morning on your, you know, satellite system, but uh, but you don't predict it. And sometimes it's good, and sometimes can be uh, terrible. Yeah. So I, one thing I was not prepared is sleep deprivation. You know, when you don't sleep for one day or two days or three days, you start to not function correctly, and that I was not prepared uh, psychologically and physically. So. So quickly, you have to learn how to uh, catch up on your sleep and, and put some small, you know, three hours, two hour, one hour, 30 minutes sleep nap during the day to be able to to be efficient. Otherwise, it becomes too dangerous. So so that was not prepared. That was not yeah. at all. Interesting. So let's go back to winemaking for a minute. You learned at the knee of your grandfather, but where, you know, so many people that want to do what you do, but probably don't understand the depth of what you do. Where would you send someone that you care about to learn about winemaking today? What do you think is a great place for them to really dive in? Well, I got the passion from my grandfather, uh, but I really learned the knowledge by passionate teachers. I was lucky to go to this French school where, you know, teacher were as passionate than, than student. So they pass on some incredible technical knowledge, practical knowledge, I think was fantastic to be able to pass on to again. So I would recommend people to go to school. You know, you have many schools, and I'm not going to give a name, but UC Davis or Chemeketa University or Linfield College in, in, in Oregon or, or even in New York, you have a ton of school who are teaching program in viticulture and winemaking. And I would say, uh, and stay in school as long as you can, because competition is very strong out there. And young winemakers come with very high degrees of education. So I would recommend any young winemaker or future winemaker to stick in school and learn and, and get masters and PhDs. So if they can, if they have a brand for it, do it, because it, it will be a important in their career. Okay. And technology is everywhere today. You've absorbed and shared techniques involving uh, technology and winemaking. What are some of the important ways technology is changing winemaking? And is there a technology you wish you had? Uh, winemaking is still very hands-on, but technology like reverse osmose, electrodialysis are part of the everyday winemaking tools. And lucky we have this technology today because that can help us to make better wine. I wish on the East Coast, then we have this technology because it's more in California than the East Coast. Oh. So 
uh, is not enough volume in East Coast really to have this technology who cost a lot of money and it would not even be possible to track truck wine on the West and come back to East. So, it's, so you, you don't have that accessible to everyone and that is sad, maybe in the future, I hope so. But I think, you know, the most important to me in terms of technology, it's um, uh, lab, lab analysis. You're able, like uh, Gordon Marjorie Burns, uh, ETS laboratories uh, really participate uh, to the American wine industry growth. They are being so innovative and with their method of analysis and so accurate. Then I don't think a winemaker can make wine without the data like that anymore. Mm. So analysis are the tool to use for every step of winemaking, and without you will not make the top wine quality possible. So I think that is is the key in the wine industry today. That's an important point. If everyone else is doing it, you've got to keep up with it. Do you have any technology that you like as a wine consumer? Because as a wine consumer, we're offered a lot of, you know, cool things to use. You know, I'm very uh, <laughs> traditional. <laughs> uh, I don't have technology. I have a good glass. I think I would recommend to have a very high quality glass and cherish that glass because the glass will, different shape of glass will give different flavor to the wine. I, I would say uh, pick a glass that you love and stick to it. And at this one, you will be consistent in your wine tasting. And don't open the bottle if you don't finish it. You know, I think that is the key. Uh, I think share the bottle with friends and, and, and that's it. But I don't believe you can recork or put gas. Yes, you can. but but open it and drink it. I love that advice, especially since we sat through a two or three hour wine glass thing where we tried all these different glasses. I would have never guessed there was such a big difference of how to enjoy it. So that I, I agree with you. That's a really uh, true thing. It seems like such a simple thing, but those glasses make a big difference. Well, Sebastian, I grew up with a single mom and uh, she enjoyed her gallo wine in a jug and then she uh, advanced to boxed wine. That's all she could afford at the time she was alive. And when I started drinking wine, I stood my cheap bottles up on the top of my warm refrigerator and and then I met Murray and he was horrified and, and my wine education began and I'm still on that journey and our trip to France uh, really, really enforced that. So for those intimidated by fine wine, how would you encourage someone to enjoy it and learn more? Well, first, Gallo Jug wine is a good wine. I thought so too. I mean, yes, I agree. For the price point, for the price point, it's a good wine. And uh, Yeah. But you don't keep it on top of a fridge. <laughs> no, apparently not. <laughs> wine needs to be demystified. It's just fermented grapes growing from different locations. And we don't want to be snub about it. Or It's not a snub product. It's part of our history. We were producing wine in Georgia in 8,000 BC, in Iran, 5,000 BC, in Greek, in ancient Romans. Uh, they have Bacchus and, and Dionysus. Uh, Jesus' first miracle was to transform water in wine. I remember that. In the marriage of Cana in, in Galilee. And you share wine at the Last Supper. So it's part of our gene for me. You know, it's, it's there forever. You know, in Egypt, they have drawing of, of calligraphy or of vines growing on wire, not on the lateral, horizontal, sorry. So that means they would know how to prune. Mm. It was not a wild jungle coming up. No, they were like horizontal. So they know they have a technique of printing already at that time. So 
in the Bible, they mentioned the word wine 231 times. I did not know that. So, so we have to demystify that. We have to own it. And we don't need to be afraid about it. We have to just, wine is like traveling. When you go buy wine, think about traveling. You go to the store and you look at the different label in Italy and Spain and France and Germany and, and on, Chile, South America. So just get it as easy as possible and travel and have fun and open the wine. And if you like it, okay, but open the, your book and learn about it. But, but I think you just need to, you know, to try and not be afraid about it and not be fancy or snob. You don't have to describe a wine with fancy words. No, usually people would describe a wine with fancy words anyways, but one who don't know much about the wine because usually you shut up and you drink <laughs> with, with passion. You know, it's such a great point too, because I feel like the other thing as an American, I, I feel like I rush through life a lot and I and I benefit from being around cultures that breathe and slow down and, and take some enjoyment. And so the other thing that wine represents to me is a really good excuse to sit with a friend and just have a conversation. And it forces the slowing down a little bit, which is really nice. Yes, it's a product of communion. It's a product of communion. We put a bottle in the middle of the table and we sit around the table with friends. So it's sad because COVID-19 just stopped that expense. Now we have to uh, you know, spread out and, and we have our mask. And it's not easy to drink wine with friends without mask. So it will come back. We will, we will mm-hmm. get together again around the table with friends and, and, and we'll, I think, appreciate even better of the wine at, at this point. So wine is friendship. Yeah, I agree. We're, we're having this conversation during yet another COVID surge, but someday, we, like you say, we'll travel again. I can't wait for that. Marie and I loved our time in France. It was the first time we either one of us had been there. And we went with you and Isabel on your immersive tour. Honestly, I didn't even know food could taste that good uh, while pairing wine with good conversation. It was really life-changing for me. And I'm still working on slowing down meals and less is more and celebrating the moment versus rushing through. I know you guys have something on the um, online for a June 21, uh, 2021 tour. Is it full? Is uh, Yes, it's pretty full. We have maybe one bedroom open. It's sad because we're supposed to be there in 2020 and we have to reschedule everything in 2020. Okay. So everybody was from the 2020, then we had to cancel because of COVID. We are going in June 2021. Hopefully, hopefully we will be able to travel. Everybody have been so, you know, kind to reschedule with us and play the game, you know, and no one really canceled. They just say, hey, when we go, we go. We'll be so excited to go when it's reopened. So thank you first. We were so glad to have you on the, on the, on the trip with us because it's not only we share Burgundy, who is very special to my heart, but we also build friendship with people. And we know, you know, people so better after spending seven days like that. And sharing the, the culture of Burgundy is always so emotional. You know, it's always so... Uh, how can I say, you know, so, so personal. So, you know, it's where I come from, is where my family is, is is where I learn winemaking, is where I make produce my first wines. And it's so rich, the food, the tradition. And people don't even realize how good it is because they have that every day. So when I go back and I bring people with me, it's such a fabulous experience. So, so we're almost full for 2021. I know 2022 is open and we start taking registration. All the information are like burgundyx.com. And, you know, I think you have to expand to know what it's about. 
It's really something special. I, I Just a couple of highlights. First of all, we're all connected. The fo- Those of us that went on that trip, we still talk to each other, even though it's COVID. And we share uh, some of the wonderful food. We still talk about the food. We still talk about the wine. We still talk about the, the vineyards that we saw and how beautiful it was. But I also remember Isabel drawing these. She keeps a journal and she draws these beautiful pictures. She takes the label from the wine, puts it on the page, and then adds a picture. We got to meet your friends. We got to meet your family. We got to walk the streets that you walked and learn about what you grew up with. We got to see the school you went to. I mean, it's such a personal and very uh, serendipitous trip. Really something special that I, I just don't think most tours can offer. Yes, and Isabel is a fantastic addition because she's an incredible artist and she comes up always with these ideas and, and, and she uh, documents everything. I'm not like that, but she documents. She draws, she, uh, she kept the labels, she uh, uh, keeps notes of what we learn and what we experience every day. And it's just, you know, we go back to this book every year and it's just like fascinating to see what, you know, we did and, and how she was able to to document that so so we we are going to uh to go back to burgundy after this covid-19 craziness so Yes, it is crazy. And I think the other thing, too, that, you know, sometimes tours are are a little bit hassled in terms of the details and whatnot. And if I recall correctly, we wrote a check. You guys worried about all the details, which came off flawlessly. And there was a lot of spontaneity in the trip, which was delightful. So because you know the area, because you grew up there, we could do a left or right turn. And you would well, let's just check this out. We walked in places. You say, I'm not sure we're supposed to be here, but here we are. It was so, so fun. So I just I don't know if we'll be able to go back on that tour again in the next couple of years because now we've got a big stacked list, but it is on our list to go again because it was a taste and I want more. Well, thank you. And yes, because it's not we are not tour operator. We are not like professionals. The idea is to go to Burgundy with a native from Burgundy and see Burgundy as Sebastian with Sebastian eyes. So I share friendship. I share the people that I know. I share the places and I know the restaurant that I like. I share my mom's house and we go to my mom's house as well. And she prepared a beautiful meal for us. And I share wine that I keep in my personal cave and, and open some wine that year. And so it's it's a special treat. Don't expect me to pour coffee in the morning. No, it's not about that. <laughs> but, but bring you to the best place. And we go see this cooper. He built barrels in front of us. You know? Oh, yeah, I can smell exactly. it. So that is passion mm. come. And, and you can see signs. There's no tourists, no picture usually. But he said, come on, come on. And, and he take us there and he show us how he built barrels. And, and one of my friends, you know, I grew up with, worked there. So here we go. I didn't see him for one year. And we kiss, we say hi. And then he show us how he toast the barrel. And so it's precious time. It's just incredible. Yeah, it is. So switching gears a little bit again, we we think many, if not most conversations eventually lead to money and its impact, good or bad, on whatever we're talking about. A lot of people make the lack of money the reason that they can't enjoy their lives. When did you first become aware of money and, and what do you wish you'd been taught about money as you were growing up? And what I'd really like you to talk about is, you know, why should the lack of money, I mean, we're assuming you can keep the lights on and feed yourself. But after that, why should that stop anybody? How do you think about that? When you work and in the wine industry, like I, I grew up, uh, you quickly realize that money is part of the game. 
Okay. Capital invested are without limit. And bigger you grow, bigger you need money and capital. Okay. So this is the reality of, of the wine industry. Uh, however, in a personal level, money does not buy happiness. Uh, I saw very rich people, and believe me, I saw some very rich person with a lot of stuff, but very unhappy life. Uh, so I realized that, no, you buy stuff, but you don't buy happiness. I grew up in a low middle class family income. We didn't have much. They have a roof. They have, they have food every day at the table. We have beautiful meal on Sundays with our parents and grandparents. But they're all successful. They all have a nice house. They all have a, you know, they all are retired. My father, my mom. And my father told, told me once, Sebastian, to be able to save money, you have to make enough money. <laughs> True. First, I'm like, okay. But now I realize, yes, if you don't have a chance to make enough money, you are not going to save. So you are going to pay your bills. And this is the only thing you can do, you know. So, so their recommendation was don't take a risk, get a job, okay, and be happy and, and be happy like that, you know, and, and do anything to not lose your job. So this is the reality at that time in France. The unemployment was very high. It was very difficult to get another job. So for them, it was like security, get a job done. Don't don't follow your dream. Just get a job. And so I think it was more like a safety, you know, safety direction. I'm not saying that to my son, Arthur. I'm saying to him, uh, there's no limit to your dreams. I'm saying the opposite. But first, get an education and a good education. And don't stop because you're tired of school. Don't be ever tired of school. Just keep doing the, the longest that you can, get the degrees that you want and, and get this education. And after, you know, when you start getting some income, be an entrepreneur as well. I think a lot of people building your own business really, I think, uh, is the key. Uh, you give value to yourself. You don't give value to somebody else. So I think that is also the key uh, for success. And and when you get your first paycheck or paycheck or income or draw, put 10% on the 401k or something because... Oh, thank you. you know, I, I did not do that. Yes, I have traveled. And first, in the one industry at that time, nobody offered 401k. So I never had a chance to have a 401k. Okay. So it's no winery that I know. Maybe one offered me 401k. That's it. So, and when you're consultant, you know, you don't always have a, you know, employer. So I never really created a 401k. I, 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 yeah, I bought both. I did some travel. I did everything. So today I tell my son to put 10% of your income away, even if it's little income, you know, cut on the, on the beer, cut on the whatever, you know, and on your gas. It all adds up. Yeah, and it will add up. And if I had done that at 25 or 21, I would maybe retire in five years, but I did not. You're speaking my language. Yeah. <laughs> Most people don't. Yeah, exactly. So now I'm like, okay, it's time. After I did, I travel, I, I did everything I wanted to do in life pretty much so far. So, so now I'm like, okay, it's time to, for me to create this 401k. So I opened the 401k and I'm putting money now on the side. I'm like, okay, this is why I am. But, but I remember what my father said, get a job and enjoy nature and, and, and family. And so, so I think you can do both, you know, you can put a 401k and also enjoy nature and family. And I repeat, repeat that to my son and to Isabel's son as well, nature and family. That is really what stick with you for life and never forget that. 
Well, you know, you've actually captured it perfectly. The only thing you would have probably done differently is started earlier. Yes. Small amounts add up to big amounts as long as you start them early. So it, it people are overwhelmed by how much they think they have to save. And it's really one foot in front of the other. But I also agree with you that, that money's generally not going to keep you warm at night. So when you get older, you look back and you say, what have I done? And what young people can never be convinced of is you're going to get a little tired later. You should do things now. So as we finish up today, I'm curious, you took a break to reset, and it seems to have made a really big and positive difference for you. So what does a well-lived life look like for you now? I feel strong. I feel strong. I feel accomplished. I feel uh, rejuvenated. I, I feel really uh, good about what I've done, the work, the career, the, the jobs, the winemaking at different countries. And most important to be able to, uh, the decision that I took to go on this sailboat trip, I think was necessary. And so my dream was to become a winemaker. I can claim that I'm a good winemaker. And I wanted to produce wine at different countries. I did. Uh, my dream was to come to U.S. to make wine. I came to U.S. and I produced wine. So you are living your best life. That's wonderful. Well, I want to thank you, Sebastian. I hope we see you in Virginia sometime soon or with Isabel, if possible. And I want to thank you for your time and your insights and your wisdom. We wish you and Isabel and the boys continued happiness, good health, and success. If you'd like to inquire about the next tour to France that they, they are taking, go to www burgundyx.com and we'll have this on our website as well and if you'd like to learn more about Sebastian and the work he's doing and the wine he's making you can look him up on uh, LinkedIn by Sebastian Marquette and if you want to know about his, his sailing adventures you can see him as the sailing winemaker on Instagram. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast and any related material is provided for general information and entertainment purposes only and do not constitute accounting, legal, tax, investment, or other professional advice. For professional advice in any realm, contact the appropriate professional. We assume no representation or warranty, express or implied, for accuracy or completeness of content. We assume no responsibility for information contained in the podcast and disclaim all liability in respect of such information, but not limited to any liability for errors, inaccuracies, omissions, or misleading or defamatory statements. Links to external websites are provided solely for your convenience. We accept no responsibility for any linked sites or their contents. Use of this podcast and its content constitutes an explicit understanding and acceptance of the terms of this disclaimer.